Hello, 5 by family. I'm Mason Weaver, and welcome to another ride on our carousel of rapid-fire board game reviews. Sarah is rolling dice and building fleets in Space Base. Ruel is dying gloriously in Blood Rage. Kat is expanding her vast pastoral estate in Fields of Arl. And if those three games take up too much table space, I'm here to tell you about a version of the trick-taking game Whist that you could play on a cutting board. Though, I don't know why you'd want to. But first, here's Ruth with the classic two-player worker placement game, Targi. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, fresh from a day playing a lot of new Essen releases, and ready to talk about a game that, well, isn't. First published in 2012, Targi was one of the first specifically two-player games to capture my attention. Previously, I'd preferred looking into games with more versatility in terms of player count, but this clever worker placement game won me over, and had me looking for a copy of my own. Except I couldn't find one. The game was actually hard to find for years, and in the end, the copy I actually got was purchased in Rome and thus wasn't in English, something of a problem when there's text-heavy cards. Thankfully, however, the game has recently received a new English-language print run and is showing up on store shelves once more, finally giving me a copy I can actually read. Designed by Andreas Steger, Targi is part of the Cosmos two-player line. Players take on the role of tribal leaders in the Saharan desert, collecting and trading goods to eventually expand their group's home. After laying out the framework of cards representing potential actions, players will fill the center of the frame with a mixture of goods cards and tribe cards, representing both periodic caravans they can interact with and the improvements available to add to their tribal tableau. During each round of the game, they'll be placing three meeples on the outer cards, followed by placing markers at the intersections of the rows and columns in which their meeples were placed. This means that each player ends up with either four or five things to resolve from their three placements, the standard actions in which they put their meeples in the first place, along with up to two cards from the center. Once resolutions taken place, players refill the center card tableau, move the red marker to a new space on the outer frame, and start over. The use of intersections in the worker placement gives an extra aspect to all of your decisions, and the restriction that you cannot place opposite an opponent's meeple helps make this two-player game feel like a more multiplayer experience, since even if your opponent didn't take the space you want, it might still end up being off-limits to you. The round marker itself also blocks an action space each turn. Because their path is set, you can plan ahead for this blocking, but that doesn't mean it won't constantly get in your way. And speaking of planning ahead, when that round marker reaches the corners of the frame, your tribe is going to be raided and must give up a number of trade goods. Plan poorly, and you might end up losing points instead when the robbers show up. Throughout a game of Targi, players can convert goods into points at the silversmith, but the vast majority of their points will come at the end of the game from their displayed tribe cards. Each card has a cost that must be played to display it, and will provide endgame points, along with potentially more endgame scoring depending on what they've collected, or a special ability that lasts the rest of the game. These abilities include things like discounts on certain types of cards, or even the ability to mitigate those raids. Each tribe card also belongs to one of five categories, which is represented represented by the art on their left-hand side. They represent things like wells and camps and so on, things you want in your tribal home. The displayed cards are placed in up to three rows of four symbols that have to be filled left to right, and you can get extra points at the end of the game if you have a row where all the symbols match or where all four types are different. This adds an extra layer to choosing your cards. If the ability is good, but that camp symbol that's on it is going to mess up your bonus, well, you're going to have to make a tough decision. 
And since you can only hold a single card in your hand for later, and you'd have to use an action to either discard or play it, well, you'd better be sure that at least most of the time you can pay for everything you've placed your markers on. Targi comes in the standard Cosmos two-player box, and everything in there is just cards or punchboard tokens, along with a few meeples. The cards do have a tendency to curve a bit, it's not too bad, but be aware when you're shuffling. I wouldn't recommend sleeving the cards, as you'll end up with a terrible glare issue when you lay everything out. The tokens themselves are fine, even if everyone I've played with refers to the dates as baked beans. But since they're all the same shape, I'm planning on replacing them with wooden or resin bits, purely to make distinguishing the types easier from across the table. But the art is distinct enough that this is more of a want for a game I love, as opposed to a necessity for play. Targi is a bit of a table hog, with all the cards and personal tableaus, and the whole thing does end up being, well, rather beige. But I'm oddly fond of the overall look, and the tribe card art from Franz Vowinkel is itself not only quite nice, but provides some spots of bright color. Now be aware, not only is Targi beige, but it's about as dry as the desert in which it's set. There's not a lot of juicy theme going on, and player interaction is simply blocking other people's meeples. Which does happen a lot, and causes a lot of swearing in our games. But yes, this is a game about getting things to turn into other things to pay for cards. And as such, this game is not for everyone. But if you like that type of game, and you play two-player games, Targi gives you a quick playing but still very meaty experience in about an hour. I'm so happy it's finally easy to get a hold off again, and for a reasonable price, since more people will get a chance to explore this two-player gem for the first time. And if you're one of those people, please let me know how it goes. You can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or more frequently on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I first played Space Base, the 2018 dice rolling game by John Clare, at a local con a couple of months ago. It was a play-to-win donated by publisher AEG. I didn't win the play-to-win, but enjoyed Space Base so much that I bought it after the con was over. Space Base is a dice rolling game that has a theme about spaceships and space stations and space things, but really it's an abstract game. Each player has a row of 12 cards with an ability or reward printed on each. Each turn, you roll a pair of dice and then activate cards based on what you rolled. If you roll a three and a four, you can choose to activate your three and four cards or combine the dice and activate your seven card. Card abilities can give you money, which you use to buy better cards, income, which represents the minimum amount of money you have in each turn, or victory points, which are how you win the game. There are also more complex card actions, many of which let you charge an ability by placing a token on it for use in a later turn. Each card you buy is numbered 1 through 12, indicating where it goes on your player board. And here's where Space Base gets fun. Every time you buy a card and put it in its slot on your board, you take the card that was already there, turn it upside down, and tuck it under your board. Each card has a second ability, printed in red on the bottom edge, which you leave visible, sticking out from under the board. You can only have one card on the board for each position, but the cards tucked under your board stack. If over the course of the game you buy five cards for a particular slot, four of them will end up tucked under your board with all four secondary abilities visible. On your opponent's turns, while they use the main abilities on their cards, you get to use the secondary abilities on your cards. This makes every game of Space Space so active and engaging. You only get to buy cards on your own turn, but you're activating cards on everyone's turn. Even with the maximum five players, once the game gets going and you've bought a few cards, there's basically no downtime in Space Space. 
Because the secondary abilities stack, I often do better on other people's turns than on my own. The cards you can buy range in cost, from the weak and very inexpensive cards that are all you can afford at first, to more valuable cards with better abilities, to one-time-only victory point cards that lock that position on your board. One interesting twist in Space Base is that when you buy a card, no matter how much the card costs, you have to use all your available money. If a card costs 9 bucks and you have 12 well, for you, that card costs 12 This adds an interesting tension to buying decisions. Often I find myself passing over a card that's more useful to me and instead buying a card that costs more because it feels like a waste to buy the cheaper card. I know that's my own psychology getting the best of me, but I still do it. Space Base comes with a lot of cards, and the wide variety of abilities allows for many possible approaches. You can focus on cards for the 1 to 6 positions, so you're getting something from every single dice roll. You can think about probability and load up the 6, 7, and 8 positions with as many cards as possible, since with two D6s, those numbers are highly likely to be rolled. Or you can chain card abilities into combos that will pay off big. For instance, the best cards tend to be in the 11 and 12 positions, which don't get rolled as often. But there are cards that will let you set one die before you roll. You could set one die to a 6, greatly increasing your chance of rolling 11 or 12. There are also cards that let you increase a dice roll by one. You charge these cards and use them whenever you want, so you could get more than one card with that ability, roll a 9, then push it up to an 11. Or there's an ability that lets you swap all cards between two positions. You could load up a slot with powerful cards, then swap those cards into a lower slot where they'll be activated more often. There's another ability that lets you simply take three inexpensive cards. The rewards from those cards are small, but the cumulative effect adds up if you get enough of them. With so much variety, it's exciting to see these cards come up and think about how each one could work with the cards you already have. I don't have much in the way of caveats about Space Space. It does play better at 4 or 5 than at 2. The fun of the game, for me, is in the secondary actions, and since there's only one other player rolling dice, you don't get to do that nearly as often. We've come up with a house rule for our two-player games. At the end of each of our turns, we roll the dice again as if it were another player, and then take the secondary actions. It's not quite the same as being in a four-player game. For one, the pool of available cards would be turning over much more quickly, but it does make two-player games more lively for us. And that's Space Base, a light, easy-to-learn game with a lot of luck, but enough strategy to keep it fun for more serious gamers. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not rolling sevens, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Blood Rage. When I dove into the hobby three years ago, I couldn't escape those two words, Blood Rage. I read the words on BGG, and nearly every gaming website I visited, I constantly heard the words on videos and podcasts. The game was, obviously, all the rage in 2015. And when I finally played it, I understood what everybody was raging about. Designed by Eric Lang, with art by Adrian Smith, and published in 2015 by Cool Mini or Not, Blood Rage is a Viking-themed card drafting in an area control game. You and your opponents lead your clans to Yggdrasil and its surrounding provinces, trying to earn the most glory, aka victory points, to win the game. Each clan's rage, axes, and horns stats determine the amount of actions you can perform each round, the amount of glory you get for winning battles, and the number of figures you can have on the board. After drafting cards, players take actions in turn order, spending the necessary amount of rage. You'll move around the map and pillage provinces, and you'll play your drafted cards to upgrade your clan, commit to quests, or use them in battles. March into a province to pillage, and enemies may answer the call to battle. The winner gains glory and any rewards in the province, the loser heads to Valhalla. 
If you successfully pillage a province, you'll typically move one of your clan stats up, thus increasing your abilities in future rounds. And at the end of each age, you'll earn rewards for every completed quest, such as having the most strength in a specific province, or having the most figures in Valhalla. At the end of each age, Ragnarok wipes out a province. Warriors killed there score glory, go to Valhalla, and are returned to the player before the next age. After three ages, the player with the most glory wins. Blood Rage is one of my favorite games of all time. I love everything about it, from its smooth gameplay to those outrageously gorgeous miniatures. For an epic game of pillaging provinces, completing quests, and sending your enemies to Valhalla, the game feels extremely streamlined, with not a single piece of bloat in it. The card drafting phase to begin each age can be a tense battle of wits. The beauty of Blood Rage lies within its cards and your attempt to collect cards that will synergize during the action phase. Most of the time when you take a card, you're agonizing over the cards you're passing on to your opponents. If you want that monster in your clan, keep that upgrade card, for example. Or take that killer combat card to help you in battle. For every choice you make, there may be a more appealing one that you give to your opponents. After drafting cards, the meat of the game is in the action phase. Here, you'll get your dudes on the map to fight and pillage and do all of the other fun things that mythical Vikings do. All of the actions and their rage costs are listed on the player boards, which is where you place upgraded warrior, leader, clan, ship, and monster cards. There's a constant tension during each age as you try to figure out ways to get everything you want done within your limited amount of rage. I love how everyone's factions evolve during the game. You and your opponents start on equal footing, but begin to diverge from the first card you draft, and the player boards are well designed, making everything easy to find and understand. Depending on your upgrades, your faction will play differently than everyone else's, with different strengths and weaknesses. You might have some beefier warriors or craftier seafaring ships, or you might recruit one of those cool-looking damage-producing monsters to join your clan. Combat is simple and smooth. Play one of your cards and add any modifiers to the figure's strength in the province. Sometimes combat cards have special actions that are triggered upon play. Winners stay in the province, losers go to Valhalla. If you launch the pillage, you gain the rewards for that province. There are some huge combinations possible if you get the right cards. Experienced players, however, can mitigate some of these combos by hate drafting or making sure that somebody doesn't get the cards they need. For new players, it's helpful to remember this simple strategy tip. Collect cards of a specific god, such as Odin or Thor. It'll be easier to synergize your cards this way. Also, there's one thing that should be stressed during any teach of Blood Rage, especially to new players. That is, the Loki strategy. It's counterintuitive to most gameplay, since you can gain a bunch of points by losing battles and letting your warriors die and go to Valhalla. It's a strategy that might not be seen by new players, and can be greatly effective when nobody defends against it. Again, veteran players can draft wisely and prevent players from utilizing Loki. Another thing to emphasize is the ability to commit to the same type of quests. It's a great way to double up on glory and clan stats, but it can blindside players who aren't aware of the rule. I've enjoyed every one of my plays of Blood Rage, win or lose. The rules never get in the way of the carnage on the battlefield. Most of the game is pretty intuitive, with just a few clarifications needed for certain cards. The card drafting mechanism to set up your clans offers plenty of replayability, and you'll use different strategies each game. There's a minimal amount of downtime since you're only performing one action each turn, but as the game progresses, its depth reveals itself. I love seeing new players get that aha moment when they start getting their cards to work together as they go into battle or complete a quest. Blood Rage is one of the best gaming experiences you'll ever have, 
one I cannot recommend enough. Dying in battle and going to Valhalla have never been more glorious. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. My extended family has a cottage on a lake built in the 1920s by my great-grandfather. It is steeped in nostalgia from playing board games, the dining room table with my third cousins, to helping my dad rebuild the front deck where my job was to stand on each board and think heavy thoughts. Every stone and root in the path down to the lake I remember, and hours spent on the dock and diving into the lake to play in the water with my sister, are possibly the favorite memories of my life. If I created a board game about my cottage, it would probably be a similar experience to what creating Fields of Alls means to game designer Uwe Rosenberg. Fields of Alls is steeped in the history of the Rosenberg family, and in this game you will get a taste of what life in East Frisia meant for the people living there. Uwe Rosenberg is arguably the single most important designer in my gaming life. He has created many, many fantastic games. Uwe is the master of the farming game genre, and Fields of Alls is a lovely, unique addition to the genre. In Fields of Alls, similar to Agricola, the goal is to build the most successful farm. You will get points for many of the things you build, animals you breed, and resources you collect. You have four members of your family that will take an action in each summer and winter season. At the end of November and March, you will return your workers to the next season, and you will take care of them while reaping the benefits of what you have built. The summer season is really about going out and collecting resources, constructing buildings, and the outdoor work of improving your farm. At the end of the season, you harvest your crops, have all the peat dried and put away to warm you over the winter, and you can't forget to feed your people. The winter season is much more about indoor work, building carts, pottery, and baking. At the end of winter, your animals have babies, you shear your sheeples, and you will again need to have saved grain or food to feed your people. There are a massive number of worker placement spaces for your family to go to work. Some are only available in the summer, and others are only available in the winter. Each action that you take is a specific and thematic slice of East Frisian life. I love taking my old horse down to cut peat from the bog, but I bristle at butchering my farm animals for their tanned hides. Many of the worker placement spaces rely on a skill level to determine your success at a specific placement location. At the beginning of the game, you start with little skill, and this will impact many of the options you take. You can place a worker at the workshop to increase your skill and improve actions which costs resources to upgrade. But ignore that option at your peril, as many of your other actions rely on skill level to perform efficiently. Each player gets a lighthouse, representing start player for a specific season. Each round, one player can take one action in the opposite season, if in winter they can take a summer action, for instance. The consequence of this is that they give up first player in that opposite season. So if your first player in winter You can take that summer action without consequence, but if you are the summer start player and you take a summer action in winter, you give up your first place marker and get the winter lighthouse token. This creates opportunities for a change in turn order that is unique and interesting at two players. Your farm starts mostly as untouched peat bog and water. The dike system in place doesn't give you a lot of room to farm. You have no carts or boats of any kind. As the game progresses, you will push those dikes out and harvest peat from your bogs, opening up more space to raise animals, build vehicles, grow crops, or construct buildings. There is a giant pile of buildings to build that provide victory points, 
one-time special abilities and some ongoing benefits, but have costs relative to their benefits requiring specialization in the myriad options available. Your family has a barn which you can fill with a variety of vehicles, plows, peat boats, and carts of all sizes. A big part of your engine is using these carts to visit neighboring towns, selling goods at market for food, and sending resources to get processed and upgraded. The expansion to Fields of Alls, Tea and Trade, adds a third player, the tea resource, and two types of boats which can be used for fishing or trade. As a person who loves tea, even growing tea plants in the yard to harvest each spring, I adore the additions that this expansion brings. At the end of the game, you will fill out a point sheet that will add up and compare all you've done. For us, the score doesn't matter because what you built and the story it tells is the important lesson in Fields of Alls. Uva has created a masterpiece for two players, a game that really resonates with my husband Sam and I, as the majority of our plays are with two. Gaming with a significant other is a particular passion for me. I enjoy communicating with others who game the same way on BGG, using the A Couple of Gamers Guild. If you play games with your significant other, join and let us know what your favorite game to play with just two is. Until next time, you can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. May all your gaming bring you joy. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about German Whist. Well, okay, sort of. I actually want to talk about Paseo Whist, the version we play at my house, which I think is not necessarily superior, but possibly of greater interest to other modern hobby gamers. But first, some background on Whist and trick-taking games in general. Trick-taking games with the French deck of 52 cards have been around for about 400 years, and by the early 18th century in England, they were very much in high fashion for the coffeehouse crowd. Now, these are full-on Age of Reason dudes, heavily into formalizing what they called scientific play. We just call it strategy and tactics, but back then it was a somewhat new idea in card games. That is, it was not tavern gambling or a folk game. They were starting to write down rule sets and publish treatises. These dudes were serious, or at least took themselves very seriously. They were mostly poncy rich kids who didn't have to work so they could afford to sit around in coffee houses and write books about card games. The formalized base of most modern trick-taking games you've played is called Whist, that's W-H-I-S-T, and your old buddy Edmund Hoyle, yes, that Hoyle, wrote the first book on it around 1740. Spades, hearts, and of course bridge all derive from Whist. Anybody who was anybody in 19th century Europe was playing Whist. If you've ever read a Jane Austen book, pretty much everybody in them plays Whist. Poe, Conan Doyle, Conrad, Tolstoy, Forrester, all bang on about it too. Whist was really, really, really popular for about a hundred years. It fell out of fashion around the turn of the 20th century because everybody went slowly crazy for bridge, which is really just a more complex bidding Whist variant. America, in particular, went bonkers for bridge from the 30s through the 60s thanks to the tireless grifting and self-promotion of a guy named Eli Culberston who crowned himself the, quote, king of contract bridge, end quote. That's an entire segment unto itself, and you should really look him up. He was sort of a huckster, but also incredibly brilliant, and someone should probably make a movie about him. So, on to Paseo Whist, and why you might want to play it. Whist is a four-player partnership game. Like Spades, Hearts, or Bridge, it absolutely cannot be played two-player with the rules as written. In general, two-player trick-taking games are in short supply, because they're mostly based on some form of Whist. There are a few two-player folk adaptations of Whist, of course, but I can't find any definitive answer as to who formalized any of them. Like most folk card games with a common ancestor, they all seem to be as-reported rule sets. Of two-player Whists, so-called German Whist seems fairly common, though there are many variations of it. Paseo Whist is our variant, which I prefer. It plays like this. Deal each player 13 cards. The remaining deck is placed face down with the top card turned up. Flip a coin for first player. 
they play any card from their hand face up to the table. Their opponent can, of course, choose to take the trick by playing a higher card in the same suit, or throw off any other card in their hand. The suit of the face-up card in the supply is the trump suit, and it changes every trick. A card from the trump suit always beats any card of any other suit. This is important, but we'll come back to it. The winner of the trick discards the two played cards and takes the face-up card into their hand, and the loser takes the face-down card. Repeat until the supply is exhausted. You'll both still have 13 cards. Importantly, in Paseo Whist, you do not have to follow suit in the first half of the game, and no points are awarded. Okay, on to the second half. This is quick, like lightning fast. Winner of the last trick leads the second half of the hand. You must follow suit, but there is no trump suit in the second half. Play out your hands and count up the tricks. But wait, did you get too greedy? Well, if you took all the tricks, you definitely did, and that's bad. You'll score a point for every trick over six you took, this is just how Whist scores, but only up to 10 tricks. 11 or 12 tricks, you get zero and your opponent gets a point. 13 tricks and your opponent gets two points. Though you're not bidding in Paseo Whist, you are aiming for an optimum number of tricks and are penalized for going over, which I love. There are a number of other games that do this as well, like Josh Burgell's excellent Fox in the Forest. So how do you win? Play to 8 points or 5 hands. If you're tied at 5 hands, play another hand. Like shooting the moon in hearts, I love a rare but possible alternate win condition. And Don't Get Greedy rewards a player dealt an extremely low hand, or allows a good player to buy themselves a very low hand in the first half. Now in our plays, this very rarely happens, but when it does, it's incredibly enjoyable. So let's roll back for a second and talk about how trumps work as well. This is not how other versions of two-player whists work. Why? Because I misread a pretty archaic rule set and completely misunderstood it. But it turned out to be great, and I love it. By having the trump suit change every trick in the first half, you're confronted with the decision of weakening your position in the suits where you're strong in order to essentially buy better cards. No trumps in the second half is also very much not how other versions play. For us, though, it ratchets up the variability. In a traditional spades high trick taker, you know what suits your opponent wants and can count cards if you're a card counter to track the game. If you're interested in a solvable card game, go for it. But for me, the hallmark of a truly engaging and replayable modern game is, and you already know what I'm going to say here, Emergence, which our plays at Paseo Whist have paid back to us tenfold. So, who should play Paseo Whist? People who want a two-player trick-taking game. I give Paseo Whist 3 out of 5 very normal and joke-free reviewing stars. Why? Because I'm not going to big up a thing I sort of semi-invented. Check out our website at 5bygames.com or my Twitter for a link to the written rules, and please, please, please let me know if you like it or have feedback or suggestions. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter, and now Instagram as well because I caved to peer pressure, at Discount Compost. Thank you for listening to the 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 Buy is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.